Well, welcome everybody to our 315 Friday afternoon session. So, you know that you love uh, Jesus if you go to the keynotes, and you know that you love the Bible if you go to the morning sessions, like a 9 or a 10 a.m., but uh, your salvation is secure if you come to the 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon <laughs> session. So, way to go just for being here. You get lots of, lots of heaven points if there is such a thing. <laughs> I am, I am aware that I have, most of you don't know me, and I have, very, I have no credibility uh, in the room. I, I, a lot of you are thinking, I need to get out of here. This teenager is about to start saying things. Um, in fact, about a month ago, there was a, a college student came forward to get baptized, and I asked her the questions, and, and uh, we went back, and I baptized her, and then she had a question for me after we came out of the water. Now, keep in mind, uh, I'm from Oklahoma. I've been working at the same church for 13 years. And her question for me as we came out of the water was, what is your name? <laughs> I said, oh, <laughs> I forgot to say that. My name is Phil. So uh, I share that story just to say I'm aware that I don't have any credibility, but that's okay because my plan is to just to dig very deeply into this, this text of Scripture that I've found um, really challenging for many, many years. And that's uh, specifically Romans 8, 26 and 27. We'll be there in just a minute. Uh, this is a class very specifically on how, how does the Holy Spirit work uh, when it comes to prayer. And so if you've come to the wrong place or after that introduction you would like to leave, you are welcome to leave at this point. Um, I'm from Oklahoma, and let me ask you this, a little audience participation off the top of your head, when I say the word Oklahoma, what are the first things that come to your mind? Tornadoes. Tornadoes. Or, what'd you say? Fracking. Fracking. Yes. If you, uh, anybody else? You were born there. Sooners. Anybody else? Sooners, earthquakes, musical. Hot and dry. What'd you say? Dust bowl. <laughs> yes. Uh, several of you mentioned this. Uh, we are now known for our earthquakes, which I never thought growing up would be possible. In fact, so 2015 was the worst year. 2015, we actually had over 900 earthquakes at a 3.0 magnitude or greater. And there was, a magne there was a headline that year that said, it's official, Oklahoma has more earthquakes this year than anywhere else in the world. Now, how many of you have actually felt an earthquake, like a good, good earthquake. This has been strange for me because my whole life I haven't felt earthquakes, but the last three or four years I feel them quite often in Oklahoma. And one thing that's odd is that I don't know how to pray when the earth starts to shake. So here's what happens. Uh, I'll be laying in bed and I'll hear that rumble. It's not the earthquake yet, but it's a very ominous sound, and you know the earthquake's about to come. I'm sure there's a fancy geological word for what I'm describing. But you can feel it coming, and then the, the house actually starts to shake. And, and several times in that moment, I've thought, okay, I'm supposed to pray something here, but what do I, <laughs> what do I say? Like, part of me thinks, okay, maybe I'll say stop. <laughs> but that, that doesn't seem like it's going to do any good. Uh, so then another part of me thinks that I, that I should go the route of, well, Lord, please help the damage to be minimum, 
Well, that doesn't really sit well theologically, because if God can minimize the damage, why wouldn't he just stop the earthquake in the first place? So then sometimes I think, well, maybe I'll pray that the church will look really good if this earthquake is, is bad. But I don't really like that prayer either, because again, God could have stopped the earthquake. So normally what I end up doing is just going the three little pigs route. Uh, little pig, little pig, let me in, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, so I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. So the prayer that I end up praying is simply, Lord, please don't let my house fall down. Uh, that's all I can get out because I'm not sure what to say. Uh, another question, to get a few of you to throw out an answer to this. Earthquakes would be one thing that I would fully admit I don't know, how to, I don't know what to say. Don't know how to pray, don't know what to say. Uh, throw out some other examples of things in your life where you would say, I don't know exactly what to pray about this. Tragedy, Tragedy. great example. What else? Repetitive sins, okay? Death of a child. Mental illness. Those are really, really good. Um, so you know the experience too. There are certain things that happen in life, and I don't know what to say. Did anybody feel this way during the election in 2016? I didn't know what to pray. Uh, I would have conversations with people, and they would both play the God is on my side card for either candidate. And it left me feeling that this sense of what, what are we exactly supposed to say to God? A few weeks ago, I was, when Billy Graham passed away, I was reading some stories from his life, and this one really struck me. In, in the early 90s, when President Bush was debating on whether or not uh, to, to go into the Gulf War, there was a moment where Billy Graham was in the White House uh, sitting with the president praying that he might have wisdom on what to do with this decision. And Billy Graham was actually encouraging the president to de declare war. Just outside the White House, there was a large group of about 100 or 200 Christians who had gathered together specifically to pray that God would not let the president declare war uh, at that moment. Well, which prayers should God listen to, Billy Graham or the crowd outside? Uh, two months ago, I got this email, which was startling. There's, there's this family at my church, a great family. The, the wife is, uh, they're both in their 40s, and, and the wife is one of those bubbly, passionate ladies that if, if people, if everybody could have her uh, evangelistic zeal, she's one of those ladies that the whole world would be converted. Just uh, so much passion. And her husband's one of those solid, high-character, behind-the-scenes guys uh, that, that does a lot of good, but you don't see him a whole lot. And they've got three boys, all 12 and under. Well, about three, four months ago, we get news that the husband in the family uh, gets diagnosed with cancer, and it's stage four, and they've said that he doesn't have a lot of time to live. Well, his wife calls me a few weeks later, and, and uh, I remember walking around my block talking to her, and we were talking about prayer. And she's one of those ladies that what she said to me was she said, Phil, I'm not in denial. I know he's probably going to die, but I want to cross that bridge when we get there, and until we get there, I'm going I'm to pray my heart out. I said, that, I admire you. I, I think you should do that. Well, just a few weeks ago, her friend sent me this email so the, her husband 
Um, we'll call him Tom. He's still alive, but he's not doing well. And so the, the wife's friend sent me this email on behalf of the wife. Here's what the email said. How do you explain to an 11-year-old boy that we're praying for full healing for his dad, but that God still loves us even if he doesn't heal him? How do you explain this on their level? Heck, I'll be 42 next week and I still struggle with this. I didn't respond to that email right when I got it because that's one of those emails uh, that I didn't know what to say. How do you help people explain to 11-year-old kids that they should pray their hearts out, but even if God says no, that God is still good? Sometimes I want to pray the miracle prayer with all the passion in the world, take it away, save her, do something. Other times I want to pray the diplomatic prayer, mainly to protect myself from being hurt, and so I lean into your will be done. But I do that because I don't want to get hurt. And so neither the miracle prayer nor the diplomatic prayer really makes sense in my own heart. So that brings us to Romans 8. I want to read these two very famous verses and then dive in and try to figure out some sense as far as how does the Holy Spirit and prayer work together. Verse 26 of Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Okay, so what exactly, what exactly is Paul getting at here? Okay, I want, I want to do a little groundwork before I dive into this, uh, what, what he's saying here. So this morning I went on a short jog by my hotel and I was by the beach and there were two roads and one road was paved and just next to the paved road there was a gravel uh, path that you could run along. And I was, as I was running on, on either one of these roads, it struck me that they go together. Uh, every time the main road curved, you found that the gravel road would curve as well. And so these roads were, were connected. They, they had to have each other to exist. Well, there's, there's four really important words in this paragraph that help us understand that you cannot understand what Paul is saying about prayer and the Spirit until you understand something else. And the four words are the first four in the same way. And so what Paul's really getting at here is he's saying, I've just told you something, and if you can understand the first thing I told you, which I'm about to get into, then and only then can you understand the relationship between prayer and the Spirit. Uh, another way of explaining this would be five or six years ago, I did a wedding, one of the most unique weddings I've ever done. The groom's dad was full-blood Native American. I had never met the guy till the day of the wedding, and at the reception, the groom comes up to me and he says, hey, Phil, are you okay if my dad says a prayer during the reception? And I said, well, sure, that's, that's fine with me. And so a few minutes later, uh, this man walks up to me and people are mingling about, and he's a, he's a large, broad-chested Native American with, with long black hair down his back. And he takes the microphone, and when people see him grab the microphone, everybody gets really quiet. And he said, let us pray. And he starts praying a normal prayer. About two to three minutes into the prayer, he switches into his Native American 
language, and he starts doing things that I have never heard anybody do in a prayer. Uh, This wasn't just speaking in his native tongue, not to stereotype it at all, but it really did sound like what you would imagine a Native American would be doing if they were around a a campfire with lots of people and lots of celebration. There was a lot of calling and ooing and eyeing and and chanting. Uh, it, It was an electric moment, and I had no idea what was going on. Well, after three or four minutes of that chanting, he switched right back into English, and then he, he finished with, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was fascinated by this prayer. And so later in the day, I pulled the groom aside and said, you, okay, you've got to explain that prayer to me. I've never heard anything like that. And he told me a story. He said, well, I come from generation after generation after generation of Native Americans, and most missionaries who have come to work with my people have got it all wrong. Most of the missionaries from decades and decades and decades ago, they came in trying to get us to abandon our culture in order to embrace Jesus. But there was one particular missionary that came in in the 1950s and the 1960s, and he revolutionized my tribe because that missionary's approach, approach was, to say, was not to say, uh, you need Jesus in place of your culture, but his message was, Jesus will bring about the best your culture has to offer. So you don't have to abandon who you are. You don't have to abandon your Native American practices. When you follow Jesus Christ, you'll be the best, holistic, most peaceful Native American people that you can be. And so once my people heard that message that Jesus redeems culture, not replaces culture, then we all became Christians. And my dad brought his Native American rituals and language into the heart of Christianity. And that's what you heard in the prayer. So... You can't understand the prayer until you understand the story behind the prayer. The exact same thing is going on in this paragraph. If you don't fully understand what has happened earlier in the chapter, you have no idea what Paul's really talking about because he says in the same way. So you have to understand the first thing. So Paul has just made, uh, basically, he's told a story, and I'll tell you the story in in three ways. The first thing he has just said is the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth up until the present time. So the the first part of this story is is the world is cursed. Uh, Creation is in labor. uh, And it's interesting to think about what his audience would have thought when they first read those words. Uh, This is the letter to the Romans. And Romans were conquering the world. And so most of these readers had seen bloodshed. They had seen crucifixion. They had seen armies walk into the city with captives. They knew that politically speaking, militarily speaking, the world was cursed. Everybody knew that Herod had ordered the slaughter of those boys just a few decades earlier. Uh, Claudius, his uh, his, his fourth wife, poisoned him. Everybody knew that. Nero executed his own mother. So people knew that creation was groaning from a political standpoint. And then think about this. Pompeii happened in 79 AD. And so what that means is that the first readers to read Paul's letter, they would have had been reading it while underneath the ground, the magma that was about to destroy Pompeii was bubbling. So in so many uh, ways... Creation was groaning back then, politically speaking. Uh, when it comes to creation, the world, the world was churning, and Paul's getting everybody to understand that. The second thing Paul says is, 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So first of all, the world's curse, but second of all, there is a new world coming. There's pain on the one hand, but there's promise around the corner. So this is when we get phrases like liberation from bondage and the redemption of our bodies. Paul is starting to tell the story. It's gloomy now, but glory is just around the corner. There's a day coming when there will be no hospice care, no webworms, no funerals. And then the question Paul answers is, okay, well, how do we get there? The world is cursed. A new world is coming. Here's the verse just before all the prayer Holy Spirit stuff. We wait for our adoption. In this hope, we are saved. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? If we wait, if we hope for what we don't have, we wait for it patiently. Okay, so if the world is cursed, but there's a new world coming, what is Paul's answer about the bridge between those two worlds? It's the theme of these verses. What do you think it is? What word do you see on the screen more than any other? Hope. So hope then functions as the bridge between the current world, which is cursed politically, uh, creation, everything is cursed, and then you've got this new world with redeemed bodies and liberation coming, and the way you connect the two worlds is hope. And and so it's not that hard to imagine uh, what Paul's talking about. Think about a woman in labor. (laughs) She's in pain. She knows the new creation, the new child is coming, and the thing that gets her through labor is hope. I know that there is something on the other side. Last week, uh, we had, a fu- we had the, f- the funeral for my grandfather. He's, he was 95 years old. He was a World War II vet, uh, and he, he passed away peacefully just a few days ago. And one of the stories that I told at the funeral was just a few years ago, I was over at his house on a Friday. We like to play dominoes together. And somehow the conversation topic got brought up. What's the hardest thing you've ever done in your life physically? And I, I told him, I said, well, for me, I, I, it'd probably be running a marathon. That was pretty hard. I said, what about you, Grandpa? What's the hardest thing you've ever done physically? And you've got to know, my granddad, he's the most humble, gentle person I've ever met. He, he doesn't have an egocentric bone in his whole body. And he paused thought about it, and then in the most non-bragging way, he said, well, I suppose it's the day I endured 16 days in a row of combat on the snowy landscape of Germany, which made me feel terrible because I had just said marathon. And then he went on to say that for those 16 days, he didn't set foot inside a building at all, and the only time he slept was for 20 to 30-minute increments whenever he happened to find a foxhole and there weren't bullets flying over his head. Now, how do you think he got through that? Hope. It's the only way you get through these things. And you've got your own stories where I'm in pain now, and I know promises around the corner, and the only way that we get there is hope. So hope becomes the bridge between pain and promise. And so here we get back to the difficult passage about prayer and the Spirit Remember those four words, in the same way. 
And so here's what Paul's getting at. You can, you can say that in life, hope is what gets you to pain to promise, from pain to promise. And so here's what's going on in your prayer life, according to Paul. In your prayer life, it is the Holy Spirit which will lead you from pain to promise. In the same way that hope gets you from pain to promise in life, the Holy Spirit does that in prayer. And you might ask yourself, just to, just to reflect on a, for a moment on your own life, do you spend more of your waking hours thinking about pain or thinking about promise? To be completely honest, most of my day-to-day life, I'm here. I'm thinking about what's wrong. I'm thinking about the bills. I'm thinking about whoever has a problem that I need to deal with. I'm thinking about my own health. I'm thinking about the health of people that I love. So I spend a lot of time here living in the world of pain. Well, the Holy Spirit's job when it comes to prayer is to move us toward the world of promise. And so when, when Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Weakness here doesn't mean uh, emotional weakness. It, it doesn't even really mean uh, doubt. Uh, what weakness means in this verse is the inability to see the big picture. What the Holy Spirit does is he enlarges our perspective. So here's another way you can say this. We don't know what to pray for because we don't know what to long for. Most people, at least if most people that I know at my church, including myself, what we long for is good health, we long to pay off the bills, we long to get a good retirement, we long for family relationships with minimal conflict, we long for the nice car, we long for the vacation. Are those God's deepest longings for you? God has something much greater in mind for you and the Spirit is always going to push you towards the broader, broader perspective. The breadth of my perspective dictates the depth of my prayer. And so the Holy Spirit's job, again, in the same way that hope moves you from pain to promise in life, the Holy Spirit in your prayer life is going to move you from pain to orient you towards promise. Now, I'm going to give you really three very tangible ways that I think that he does that. So everybody take out your hand and hold it up. Now I want you to put it over your mouth, just touch your mouth, and then I want you to say, the Holy Spirit translates. It's the first thing he does. He translates. Uh, Verse 26, when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. He functions as translator. About two years ago, I got really sick, and I didn't know what was going on with me, uh, and I went to the doctor. Well, it turns out that I had uh, the flu influenza strain B. Now, I will tell you what did not happen when I got to the doctor's office. What did not happen is that I walked into the doctor and said, Sir, I know exactly what's wrong with me. I've got influenza strain B. It was caused by a weakened immune system. I haven't been drinking enough vitamin C. I need you to give me an antibiotic, and then I'll be fine. I didn't say any of that. I remember getting to the lobby. I checked in, uh, and then I laid down on a bench just groaning 
And I felt that other people were like walking away from me because I was just strangely moaning on this bench. Well, a nurse walked out. I couldn't even get out any words to her. She would say, what's wrong with you? And I just... Somehow, as she escorted me back to the doctor's office, and finally when the doctor uh, walked in, somehow that doctor was able not to listen to my words, but to listen through my words to what was actually going on. The doctor was able to give me tests and learn what was actually happening in my body. The Spirit translates your deepest longings to God even when you don't know your deepest longings. So you might tell God what you want. The Holy Spirit is going to tell God what you need. And so you might be praying, oh God, I just need a job. Please give me a job. Please, Lord, I need a job. The Holy Spirit might be praying, Lord, she needs patience. The Holy Spirit is translator. Now, the good news here is that what this means is that you and I should feel ultimate freedom to say whatever we feel like is going on in our hearts. Because the great news about the Spirit being translator is that even when you're wrong or you're off or you're saying something that's completely selfish, realize that's going through a filter before it reaches heaven. The Spirit prays for me what I would pray for myself if I was fully formed. I'll say that again. The Spirit prays for me what I would pray for myself if I was still, if I was fully formed. And so what this means for us, again, this is a big confidence boost. Prayer still works, even at our worst. And so for those of you like me that have that little critic sometimes that's looking over your own shoulder saying, well, you didn't pray that very well, and you should have said this, and that, that was a prayer of a seven-year-old. When you've got that critic running around in your head, that's okay. You can keep praying because you have got a translator. So, hand up to your mouth. Say, the Holy Spirit translates. Okay, now I want you to put both hands over your face. Like Moses, shielding himself from the radiant God. And I want you to say, the Holy Spirit mediates. So, on the one hand, you can think about it this way. If you're here... And God's over here. When you are communicating to God, the Holy Spirit is translating that into what you actually need. Well, when God wants to get through to you, sometimes God can be terrifying. And so what the Spirit does is he mediates the presence of God to us. Uh, let me illustrate that. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What this means is that if we actually had an encounter with the living God just as he is, like most people in the Old Testament, we would fall down and look as dead people because we would be terrified. I was reading a book called The Circle Maker, uh, and I, it's a great book about the power of prayer. Mark uh, Batterson wrote this book, and he had this great train of thought based on Isaiah 55. I'll take you through it. He says that the speed of light is 186,282 miles per second, which is pretty hard to fathom. So everybody snap your finger. When you snapped your finger, light just traveled around the world six times. It's pretty fast. 
If you were to get in your car and drive to the sun at the speed of light 12 hours a day, it would take you 320 years to get to the sun. Now, when you step outside when this class is over and that ray of sun hits your face, realize that it got to you in eight minutes. Speed of light is very, very fast. Now, if that same ray of light, which started at the sun and traveled 93 million miles in eight minutes, that light is going to keep traveling for the rest of the day. And by the end of today, the light that started at the sun 24 hours ago will have traveled the unfathomable 23 solar systems away. That's in one day. Now, if that same beam of light were to travel for an entire year, if you could somehow keep track of that one beam of light that started this morning and measure how far it went one year from today, it would have traveled the staggering 5,865,969,000,000 miles away. Now, here's the crazy part. That is one light year. One light year. And astrophysicists say that the universe as we know it is 15.5 billion light years away, the edge of the universe. So God says that is the distance between his thoughts and your thoughts. And so Mark uh, Batterson, I love his summary of this whole train of thought. He says, here's my thought. Your best thought on your best day falls 15.5 billion light years short of how great God really is. So he's huge. He's completely unfathomable. He's big. And yet, think about this. In Scripture, God is also the one who knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. And he rejoices over his people with singing. It's the, great, it's the great paradox of Scripture. He's bigger than you could possibly imagine, and yet he's so small so as to know your name and pay attention to you. And so Philip Yancey has a great way of putting this paradox in, con- or in perspective. Yancey says, A God unbound by, rules, by the rules of our earth has the ability to invest an infinite amount of time in every finite being. The distance between people and God, a distance no one can grasp or fathom, is the very thing that creates space for God to relate to all people. So here's my summary of Yancey's comment there. God can be infinite and intimate at the same time. And for you and I, one of the big questions of our lives is, how do we access the God who holds 15.5 billion light years in his hands. How do we we have access to this huge God that we can't explain and we can't fathom? Romans 8. By the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. It is through the Holy Spirit that you experience the presence of God. So on the one hand, the Holy Spirit serves as a translator. I'm over here saying, Silly things, saying uneducated things, saying things that don't make any sense because they're so self-centered. And the Holy Spirit takes all these thoughts and he translates them to God. So God hears what I really need. 
And then from this perspective, the God who breathes the universe, the God who's 15.5 billion years, who can hold that amount of a distance in his hand, that God, when he tries to relate to me, he goes through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit allows me to gaze upon that kind of God. You see, this should make us feel really confident Yes, God's huge, but he can give us his undivided attention because his attention is infinite. And we can experience God through the Holy Spirit. My, my family just a few weeks ago read the Lion, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe out loud together with my girls who were sitting in the back. And when Aslan rises from the dead and Lucy and Susan start to ride on his back, there's this great line where C.S. Lewis says, the girls couldn't tell if they were playing with thunder or playing with a kitty cat. Well, that's God for you. He's the thunder, but he's the kitty cat too. And God can come to us as Father only because of the Holy Spirit. So what this means for you is as you think back through your spiritual memories and some of those sweet moments come to your mind of those moments where you really you felt the tenderness of God, Maybe it was that prayer moment where you just felt God was right with you or that conversation that was the turning point in your life or that worship experience where you were like, whoa, I was caught up into the arms of God. Realize all those moments don't happen without the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of God. It is through the Spirit that we can say Abba. If there is no Spirit, there's no ability to say Abba. So the Holy Spirit translates and the Holy Spirit mediates. Take your hand, put it to your mouth and say the Holy Spirit translates. Now cover your face and say the Holy Spirit mediates. Okay, third one is this and the final one is this. Take your finger and point somewhere and say the Holy Spirit points. What the Holy Spirit does, back to the first part of this lesson, is he's always going to be pointing towards promise, towards resurrection towards new creation. So elsewhere in Romans 8, Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so the early readers would have understood this a little more than we do today. The, the first fruits were the early sheaves offered to God, and they were the sign of a great crop. They were a sign of more to come. And so early readers would have realized that, oh, if we have the Holy Spirit now, that's actually just a foretaste of the eternity that is to come. Paul is more clear in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 when he says, God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. There it is, deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I did a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit a few years ago at my church, and uh, I would say that the Holy Spirit is the sequel to Jesus. He's Jesus 2.0 if you read John closely. And number two, the Holy Spirit is the prequel to eternity. So the Holy Spirit is that deposit. He's the foretaste. When you get a glimpse of the Holy Spirit, you know there's something better coming. The Holy Spirit's always going to be pointing you towards heaven, towards the resurrection, towards new creation. I have an older brother, and one of my uh, favorite memories of him as when we were young is my parents decided to, to throw him a, a surprise birthday party when he turned 18 years old. Now, there's two... Two ways to throw a surprise birthday party. One is to throw it before the birthday happens so the person's really surprised. We did that just a few days ago with someone in my small group. He doesn't turn 40 for a month, and so we threw the surprise birthday early. 
He was very surprised. Well, with my brother, when he turned 18, it was the opposite. We threw a surprise birthday party for him after he turned 18. It was, it was one day after. And so what that meant was, in order to keep the surprise, we had to throw him kind of a fake birthday party on his actual birthday. But we couldn't make it that good because the real surprise was coming the next day. And so I remember sitting down to dinner, and my mom had made this, like, pitiful cake, like one candle on it. It was not what you want for your 18th birthday. And my parents had got my brother some very small gift. Again, I don't remember what it was, but I just remember it. This is not what you would want when you're turning 18. But we sang happy birthday, and we pretended like it was the real thing. And my brother's a tough guy, and I still remember him sitting across the dinner table from me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he was fighting back. Because he knew he shouldn't cry. That's silly. That's child, childish. I don't want to cry. But I could tell he was so broken because he wanted something bigger. Now, what do you think I wanted to say to him? Oh, man. Now, I had to keep the secret, so I couldn't say it. But what I wanted to say to him was, I wanted to say, Oh, David, if you just knew. Like, if you just knew what was happening tomorrow. Like, if you just knew the gifts that you would get. And if you just knew the people that would be in this house, if you just knew what was coming tomorrow, you wouldn't be sad today. That's what the Holy Spirit's trying to say to you. That's what he's trying to say to us. He's always pointing. Again, he's pointing from pain to promise. So if you get quiet and listen to the Holy Spirit, that's the message you're going to hear. It's like, I get it. You're, you're living in a world of pain, and it's hard, and things aren't going well. But just realize it's not the end. Like, realize what's coming next. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell all of us. He's trying to get us to look forward into the future. This is so important, especially in an age of uh, doubt and despair. There's a lot of people uh, who wonder if they're even going to be with God when they die. They wonder if the resurrection's a sham. Uh, they wonder if heaven is just wishful thinking. If that's you today, listen to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is playing the first note of the symphony that will last for eternity. So even though you can't hear the symphony yet, just listen to that one note. See, the really good news here is that Satan can take away a lot of things. He can take away your health. He can take away your joy. He can take away a child, take away a spouse, a job. Satan can't take away the Holy Spirit. And so keep listening to the Spirit. Here's another way that I want to illustrate this pointing forward um, component of the Spirit that he brings to us. It's been eight years since the Chilean miners got stuck for two months. And so if you remember the story, these 33 miners were working hard, and the mine shaft collapsed, and they found themselves a half a mile underneath the earth, uh, trapped. And there's been a lot written about this, and early on, all 33 thought, this is, we're done. Like, there's no way we're going to survive this. We're, we're not going to break out. Uh, they were down there two months, and, and various holes were drilled, and, and one thing led to another, and, they, and they, they finally had this shaft that was big enough for, for these people to, to get out. Well, one thing that we're told happened right before they were rescued, we're told that the 33 miners got in a circle and they prayed. We don't know what they said. Uh, 
but we just know that they prayed. Now, I can tell you what they didn't say. I'm pretty sure they did not pray that more batteries would be sent down the shaft so that their flashlights kept working. And I'm pretty sure they didn't pray that more tuna fish cans would be sent down the shaft so that they could eat. And they probably didn't pray for more air freshener to be sent down. Maybe more air freshener. Maybe. Probably not, though. Rescue was just a few feet away. Can't you imagine what they prayed? It's full of joy and, and gratitude. God, we're about to get to the world that we were made for. These people were not designed to live in a cave. They were designed to live in the real world. And so sometimes for us, or I can speak for myself, I get so used to my little cave that it just seems normal. And I forget that even in the best moments of my life, I'm still awaiting rescue. And even in the best moments of your life, you are still awaiting rescue rescue. You were not fashioned for this world. You were fashioned for eternity. This world's messed up, and the other world's not. And the more the Holy Spirit forms you, the more you're going to start praying into the second world, into the heavenly world. If we want heaven to come to earth in real life, heaven must first come to earth in our prayer life. And so that means within your prayers, with what you say to God, lean into the Spirit and you will start praying heaven-focused prayers, resurrection-focused prayers. As they were trapped in that shaft, there was one particular man who was a little more troubled than everybody else. His name was Tikona. And when he went into the shaft, his wife was eight months pregnant. And so while everybody else mourned the loss of their own life, Tikona mourned the fact that his daughter would never have a father. And he writes about this, that in the first few days, he just sat in despair. After three or four days, he started hearing the sound of drilling, and he knew they were trying to reach them, but they kept missing. Because from the, from the top, they didn't know exactly where they were, and so they kept drilling down, but they just kept missing the cave. And so finally there was a day when they saw a drill bit break through for the first time. And in that moment, Tikona thought, you know what? Maybe I'll see her. Well, then that hole got bigger and bigger, and about two or three weeks later, they were able to send a wire down, and he was able to get on the iPad and communicate with the outside world, and they got the iPad down just in time for him to see the birth of his daughter. They'd already given her a name. Her name was going to be Carolina. After he saw the birth and after he saw his wife holding Carolina in his arms, Tikona said, honey, I know you're not going to like this, but I think we need to change her name. And his wife said, what do you want to name her? And he says, I, th- I think we need to name her Esperanza. Does anybody know what Esperanza means? It means hope. And so in one of the books written about this story uh, several years later, here's what Joseph Franklin said about this naming. Esperanza's birth was a miracle because she gave hope to the miners. And this is such an important line here. She gave their dream of rescue a face. The Holy Spirit gives your dream of eternity a face. You see, on our worst days, we don't know what to pray for because we don't really know what we're supposed to long for. But as you are formed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, then what happens is the Spirit actually recalibrates 
what you long for. And once you have what your once you have your longings recalibrated, then guess what? You know what to pray for. When the spirit recalibrates what you long for, then you do know what to pray for. So I'll give you two practical takeaways and then we'll be done. The first one is is simply this. Pray hopefully. Isn't it funny that that word hopefully, just when we use it in everyday life, it doesn't really mean what we want it to mean. Uh, There's some doubt in the way we normally use that word. I'll get home tomorrow, hopefully. Like there's doubt there. I'm not saying, I'm not using hopefully in that context. I'm saying pray full of hope. Because when you lean into the Spirit, that's, that's what He's going to lead you to pray. Because here's, here's the truth. If we don't pray with hope, we can't live with hope. I, I, I won't go back there right now, but do you remember at the very beginning of the lesson, I had those two arcs on the screen. The first one was, in life, hope is what takes us from pain to promise. And in prayer, it's the Holy Spirit that takes us from pain to promise. There are so many of us that want to have hopeful lives, and we want to be those people that can live in the middle of pain and darkness and death, but still have hope that something better is coming. If hope is not in your prayer life, hope is not going to be in your real life. And so in your private prayers, in your public prayers, make it a point to pray with hope. Your real life is birthed from your prayer life. And if you cannot imagine this in prayer, you cannot live it out in life. So pray hopefully. But then secondly, pray honestly. And I'm really leaning back into this first point about the Holy Spirit being translator If the Holy Spirit really translates what you want into what you need, then pray with reckless abandon. Don't don't worry about if you're saying it right or if you're using the right words or if you're you're getting your theology correct. Just just pray. And the Holy Spirit is going to translate that into what God needs to hear. I love the way that uh, Yancey puts it in his prayer book. I I don't have this on the screen, do I? Here's what Philip Yancey says. If, I was, if, if, di- if diagnosed with a serious illness, I would ask directly for physical healing. We are commanded to pray for healing. Jesus decisively demonstrated God's desire for human health and wholeness. And dozens of studies have borne out the effectiveness of prayer in the healing process. Faith works. Faith aligns body, mind, and spirit. It galvanizes the healing process built into our bodies. And I love that quote because sometimes... When I get emails like, how do I tell my 11-year-old son to pray for his dad? I want to water it down and say, well, don't pray too boldly. Don't say what you really want because you don't want to get hurt. But I'm so glad Yancey writes this because we should pray as we are, not as we think that we should be because we have the Holy Spirit. So pray with reckless abandon. The Spirit-led prayer is not necessarily stoic and reserved. It's honest. God is looking for not the ideal you, but the real you. And so pray as you are. The Spirit will clarify your words. The Spirit will purify your motives. The Spirit will interpret your requests. Pray imperfectly because it's the only way to pray. I'll end with a a poem here and then I'll be done. I was reading a Richard Foster book on prayer and there was this poem, and it was really deep, and I had to go to the back of the book to figure out who wrote this poem. 
But this poem is about Romans 8, 26 and 27. They tell me, Lord, that when I seem to be in speech with you, since but one voice is heard, it's all a dream. One talker aping two. So there's four, there's four stanzas here. So this first one he's saying, some people tell me that when I'm talking to you, it's just me because there's only one voice. So you might hear either, either people in your churches or, or you've probably had this prayer many times or thought many times. God, God it just seems like the prayer is bouncing off the ceiling. It just seems like me. Where are you? Second stanza. They are half right, yet not as they imagine. Rather... I seek in myself the things I hoped to say, and lo, my wells are dry. So in the second stanza, the author is saying, they're they're kind of right that it's one voice, but here's what's really going on. I try to talk to God, but I don't know what to say. My, My wells are dry. I have no idea what to say to him. Then, seeing me empty, you forsake the listener's role... And through my dumb lips breathe, and into utterance wake the thoughts I never knew. Okay, so this is, this is getting beyond my comprehension level at this point. I had to read this like eight times to try to figure it out. <laughs> so he's, what the author's saying here is that God sees him in this moment, and God knows that the author has nothing to say. And so God breathes words into this person's lips, and he starts speaking things that he did not know himself. Final stanza. And thus, you neither need reply nor can. Thus, while we seem two talkers, thou art one forever, and I no dreamer but thy dream. Okay, so this is, we're getting to the 15.5 billion light years away. This is pretty deep here. He's saying God can't reply because God's actually the one speaking through you. And so, in a sense, uh, this is, gets pretty deep here, but we are in the dream of God from what the author is saying. Now, I read this in Foster's book, and I just had to sit there thinking, I don't know who this was, but this was a really deep guy. Well, he didn't, he didn't say who the author was. And I had to flip to the back of the book, and uh, does anybody know who wrote this? It was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote that about prayer, and that's, that's better than anything I could have said about Romans 8, 26, and 27. God, God is, is himself speaking through you back to God. So, yes, it seems like one person is talking, but it's really a dialogue between God and God via the Holy Spirit. Well, if you'll bow with me, uh, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. Father, it's been so good to be together and, and uh, just pour over your word. And, Father, I pray that we would be a people of hope Some of us are in seasons which really lend themselves towards hope, and others of us are in seasons that don't lend themselves to hope. But I'm praying that no matter where we are, we will be people of resurrection and people of new creation and people that can recognize that this is the cave, and one day we're waiting a new world with with new bodies. And so, Father, would you galvanize hope deep within our hearts so we can pray it to you and then in turn live it in our lives. And, Father, help us to be honest in the way we pray. Help us to pour out our hearts uh, to you as they are and not as we think they should be. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, put your hand to your mouth.
The Holy Spirit translates. Say that. The Holy Spirit translates. Put your hands over your face. Say the Holy Spirit mediates. Then point and say the Holy Spirit points. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.